This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we love to read and talk about comics by Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about The Warlord, 27 and 28, John Sable, 17 and 18, Green Arrow, 19 and 20, and we'll be wrapping up Star Slayer with issue number 8. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrail.com. That's his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with photos and news updates. In his most recent post, Mike Grail shares how he was asked by musician Brain Power to draw the cover for his new single titled All the Same. Mike said the concept for the art was simple, but difficult to accomplish. Nine faces on a square grid, all different races, but inherently the same. We settled on the eyes being the focus, since after all, they are really the window to the soul. At first I was flattered, then challenged, then frustrated, and ultimately just so proud to be part of this important message at a time when the world seems focused on what separates us rather than what unites us. On his website, you'll find more details and a link to the animated music video for All the Same, which incorporates images from the cover. The song has a great message, and it's exciting to see Mike Grell's art as part of it. If you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He's always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you can't make it to a convention to meet Mike Grell but would like to get an original drawing, just contact Scott Cress of Catskill Comics. He's the official representative for Mike Grail for commissions. I always enjoy looking at Scott's website. There's lots of original comic pages from a variety of artists, along with some incredible commissions. Just check out the CatskillComics.com link in our show notes, and you will see what I mean. We always enjoy sharing listener feedback, and all of the conversations with listeners on social media are great. Feel free to join in the conversations or to write to us anytime. We'd love to hear your opinions about any of Mike Grell's titles over the course of his career. I'm always interested in knowing what others think of Mike Grell's work. It's fun to learn which characters or stories others like best, so any comments you send our way will be appreciated. We'll give our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of this episode. And if you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts. Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the excellent sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. While Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales featuring Cadillacs and Dinosaurs by Mark Schultz. We'll be sure to include links to those other podcasts in our show notes as well. John Sable, Freelance Number 17, October 1984, Deadly Games, Part 1. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters by Ken Brusniak. 
Colors by Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. The story opens with Maggie sneaking out of bed early and leaving the sleeping John Sable in bed alone. As she leaves, she takes a painting by Wythe off the wall and leaves a note telling Sable she's going to take it as a down payment on the $2.5 million he owes her from their previous adventure. Next, we see the Russian dancer Mishka Yurkovich talking to Mike Blackman's roommate, Gray. Mishka gives Gray a teddy bear and asks him to hide it. He plans to give it to his wife, Anastasia, for her birthday. Walking back home, Mishka pauses to unlock his door when a man comes up from behind him and shoots and kills him. The next day, children's author B.B. Flam arrives at Eden Kendall's office to turn in the latest chapter for her review. As he leaves the office, B.B. Flam enters the elevator, and on the ground floor, John Sable exits the elevator. He stops on the way home to deliver a copy of the chapter to Mike Blackman so she can begin the illustrations. While he's there, Gray arrives with a copy of the newspaper with a gruesome news about Mishka's death. Later at the funeral, Gray gives Anastasia the teddy bear, telling her Mishka planned to give it to her for her birthday. It's wearing the Olympic symbol tied on with a ribbon. Harold the file clerk is also at the funeral and gives Sable some information. The killing was probably the KGB because of the publicity over the defections. It's likely that Anastasia will be next. Leaving the funeral, Sable notices a car following Anastasia, and he, in turn, follows that car. Sable rushes in at Anastasia's house when he sees the man following her inside, but he's knocked down and the man gets away. Inside, Sable finds the teddy bear ripped apart, but no sign of Anastasia. At the police station, Captain Winters is giving Sable a tough time when a CIA agent arrives. A KGB killer known as the Sparrow has killed three defectors in the last 18 months using the same method as was used on Mishka. Anastasia is there at the police station. She was able to escape because Sable distracted the man following her. Everyone wants Anastasia to go into hiding, but she insists on traveling to Los Angeles to perform with her company. They're going to be there to coincide with the opening of the 1984 Olympic Games. Sable insists on traveling with her to act as bodyguard. They depart by train, traveling with the company's props and costumes. On board the train, Sable gives Anastasia the teddy bear with the Olympic ribbon. He patched it the best that he could. In Chicago, Sable has the two of them change trains to take a different route that will take them through Montana. It will add a day to the trip, but should confuse anyone trying to follow them. In the dining car, Sable notices someone suspicious and sends Anastasia back to her cabin. He then follows the man to the baggage car. Sable pulls a knife on him, but then the man shows him his credentials. He is a CIA agent assigned to watch them. But when Sable drops his guard, the man pulls out a gun. It isn't a CIA agent. It's the Sparrow. Sable kicks the gun away, but the Sparrow throws him against a door, opening it into the night. Sable stabs his knife into the Sparrow's leg. The Sparrow falls back but then pulls the knife from his leg and throws it, hitting Sable in the shoulder, and Sable tumbles backwards, falling from the train. The cover features an image of the Olympic flame. A bloody hand holds the torch, and an image of John Sable wearing his battle mask appears in the flame. The opening scene of Maggie sneaking away and the note she leaves behind was good fun and a perfect way to remind readers of the previous story. And I'm sure Jeff Nettleton appreciated the Wythe reference because he is one of Jeff's favorite illustrators. I love the way the characters turn back up in Mike Grell's stories. You never know who you are going to see again, and that makes every character you meet in his stories potentially important. The way Mishka was killed was horrible, 
and I appreciate that the scene was done subtly in shades of blue and gray, but it was still quite disturbing. I think the action in this story is fast-paced, speeding along even faster than the train. There are gorgeous drawings throughout this issue, including a great shadowed close-up of Sable holding a gun on the train. I really appreciated how many panels were done only in shades of blue and gray. It makes the issue very striking and suspenseful. John Sable Freelance, number 18, November 1984. Deadly Games, part two. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters by Ken Brusenek. Colors by Janice Cohen. Editor, Mike Gold. <coughs> Sable wakes in a wooded forest. A moose stares at him quizzically. Sable builds a fire and then pulls the knife from his shoulder and then immediately burns the wound, cauterizing the injury. He begins to walk along the railroad tracks as they wind through the woods but the wound is too severe and he passes out. He wakes to find a different animal staring at him. It's a mule, and its owner is Bonnie Shields, the Tennessee mule artist. She takes Sable back to her cabin and treats his wound and gives him some food and listens to his story. He needs to get to Los Angeles quickly, but the nearest commercial airport is all the way in Spokane, but she knows someone who could help. At a local airfield, Sable meets a fellow former soldier who has heard of John Sable. The pilot introduces himself as Pappy and shows off his perfectly preserved and meticulously maintained World War II era plane. Arriving in Los Angeles, Sable rushes to the train station, where he meets back up with a CI agent from Captain Winter's office in New York. The two of them are waiting on the platform when the train arrives. They break into the cabin, hoping to find Anastasia has kept herself locked safely away. But inside, Sable again finds only the teddy bear with the Olympic symbol on a ribbon. Both men are certain that Anastasia has been killed. Sable walks away devastated, carrying the teddy bear. But then he notices something odd about the ribbon and the Olympic symbol. He tears it off and finds a microdot underneath. The Olympic Games are getting ready to start, and he knows what is going to happen. Outside the Olympic Stadium, Sable spots the sparrow entering a building across the street. He's carrying a long cylindrical tube. Inside the stadium, a man carries the Olympic torch along a track in front of a cheering crowd. Sable runs up the stairs inside the building, but the sparrow is waiting for him on the stairs. However, this time, Sable gets the better of him, twisting and breaking his arm and saying, This is for Mishka. Sable pulls out his gun and continues up the stairs, where he finds a woman with a small compact missile launcher that was concealed in the cylindrical tube the sparrow was carrying. The woman turns. It's Anastasia, but Sable isn't surprised. He's figured out the whole story. Anastasia was only interested in escaping from Russia so that she could be a sleeper agent but her husband Mishka found out when he discovered the microdot detailing her assignment. Mishka didn't know what to do, so he hid the microdot in the teddy bear. That's why the teddy bear was torn. She was looking for the microdot, but didn't think to look on the ribbon. Anastasia couldn't have Mishka expose her or the plan, so she called in the sparrow to kill him. Anastasia plans to fire a heat-seeking missile when the small Olympic torch lights the large Olympic flame. It's all a plan to embarrass the U.S. in retaliation for the embarrassment Russia experienced when the U.S. withdrew from the 1980 Olympics. 
Anastasia kicks the missile launcher, knocking Sable aside. She runs away, carrying a remote control for the missile launcher. She can fire the heat-seeking missile, and it will still find the large Olympic flame nearby. As she gets into the car in front of the building, she presses the button on the remote control to launch the missile. But just then, Sable fires his gun, hitting her gas tank and igniting her car in flames. The heat-seeking missile veers from its course and strikes the car, just as the Olympic torch ignites the Olympic flame safely inside the stadium. The cover features an image of John Sable crouched with a red background behind him. He is wearing his battle mask and aiming his gun. Below him, there is a pattern of five bullet holes forming the Olympic game symbol. The opening scenes in the woods are serene, and the moose staring at Sable is funny. The whole scene is a humorous contrast to the seriously injured Sable lying with a knife sticking from his shoulder. You can see the care that Mike Grell puts into the wildlife drawings. The forest and wildlife all look realistic, and I especially like the panel with one eagle flying while another is perched in a tree. All these pages are gorgeous. This story was a shocker. As mentioned earlier, you never know what characters are going to show back up in a John Sable adventure, and who would have expected Anastasia to have turned out to be an undercover agent? I could feel the sorrow and betrayal that Mishka must have felt as well. It was neat the way Mike Grell fit two real people into this story. Bonnie Shields is a real painter known as the Tennessee Mule Artist. You can check out her art at bonnieshields.com. The next time we see Mike Grell, we'll have to ask him if he knows her. And I love the homage to Greg Pappy Boyington. Growing up, I used to watch Baba Black Sheep, also known as Black Sheep Squadron, with my dad every week. I was a big fan of Robert Conrad from that show, as well as the shows The Wild Wild West and Assignment Vienna before it. Coincidentally, Ruth and I had the opportunity to meet Robert Conrad just earlier this year. We waited in the long line for his autograph for more than four hours, but it was worth every minute. He was such a nice man and very appreciative of everyone who came out to see him. And I got two autographs from him, one as James West from The Wild Wild West and one as Pappy Boynton from Black Sheep Squadron. Beautiful as Aphrodite, wise as Athena, stronger than Hercules, swifter than Mercury. Explore the 75-year history of the Amazon princess with Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, a monthly podcast available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at wonderwomanwarriorforpeace.wordpress.com. Green Arrow, Issue 19, June 1989. The Trial of Oliver Queen, Part 1. Written by Mike Grell. Pencils, Ed Hannigan. Inks, Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Lackament. Associate Editor, Brian Augustin. Editor, Mike Gold. It is a lovely evening in Seattle. Two police officers stop at a shop for coffee and donuts. A security guard walks up to the oldest officer, Egan, and comments that he must be getting really close to retirement, just like himself. The two laugh and joke about it. As the officers leave with their coffee in hand, a dispatcher announces a report of armed individuals sighted in a nearby street. The officers make their way quickly to the scene, and Officer Egan turns down an alley to search the area. Green Arrow is watching from a rooftop and sees an armed and masked individual is in the shadows below. Suddenly, a gun is aimed at Officer Egan, and two rounds are fired and strike the officer in the chest. He is knocked off balance as he fires back, but his bullets miss their target. However, Green Arrow's aim is true, and an arrow sinks into the assailant's chest. 
but then Officer Egan realizes he was hit with paint rather than bullets. Egan and Green Arrow pull off the mask to find an injured teenage boy. Sometime later, Dinah and Oliver are standing outside of the courthouse when Oliver says he wants to take a walk on his own. Dinah gives him a hug and a kiss and watches him walk away. Oliver thinks back to the courtroom proceedings. The injured teen, Officer Egan, and Oliver all testified about the incident. The judge decides that the officer's use of force was justified and that Oliver was entitled to use deadly force given the perceived danger. The judge then proceeds to lecture the teen about the dangers of playing such a game in the streets, and he is very harsh with Oliver, explaining that vigilantes are dangerous and have no place in an orderly society. Back at Sherwood Florist, Dinah calls Hal Jordan and shares what happened. While on his walk, Oliver happens upon a car being stripped by criminals. He thinks to himself that he should beat them up, but he angrily resists the urge to do so and walks away. Once home, Oliver pours himself a large drink. The painting of Robin Hood catches his eye, and he throws his glass at it, knocking the painting from the wall. He falls to the floor, depressed and defeated. Green Arrow doesn't appear on the cover, but his costume is strewn carelessly on the staircase beneath the painting of Robin Hood. I really like the composition, and it made me curious to see just how it would fit into the story. The two-page title page spread has an interesting layout with angular panels. It makes a nice pattern. I especially like the way the officer's flashlight is shining in the dark, and all of the action poses are great here. On the next page, the overhead view of the officer shining his flashlight as shots are fired toward him is impressive. I was relieved to learn that the teen survived the arrow wound and could imagine just how sick Oliver must feel over it, and the illustrations did a great job of conveying his emotions. The sequences of Oliver recalling his courtroom experiences are nightmarish. The judge appears to grow larger and larger in each panel as Oliver gets smaller each time. By the end, Oliver is small enough to be knocked over by the judge's gavel. It's certainly an effective visual. I liked Hal Jordan being referenced in the story since Green Arrow and Green Lantern have had so many adventures together. Green Arrow, number 20, July 1989. The Trial of Oliver Queen, part 2. Written by Mike Grell. Pencils, Ed Hannigan. Inks, Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Letters, John Costanza. Colors, Julia Laquamet. Associate Editor, Brian Augustin. Editor, Mike Gold. It's the start of the evening shift at the station. Officer Egan is being teased for missing his mark in the alley, but he says he's very glad he did, otherwise the teen might have been killed. Oliver wakes from a nightmare and is startled by a squirrel staring at him just inches from his face. The confused Oliver is looking around the campsite, trying to figure out where he is, when Hal Jordan shows up with fresh fish to cook. Hal tells Oliver that he's not surprised he doesn't remember the trip up the mountain because he had had way too much to drink. Oliver gets angry, saying he can take care of himself, and Hal accuses him of wallowing in self-pity. Hal tells Oliver to do his best to learn from his mistake and warns him that drinking too much can be destructive. Following that remark, Oliver jumps up and punches Hal. Fists fly, but then Oliver's anger fades away quickly and completely when Hal says he wants his friend back. Back in the city, police officers are being dispatched to quell a gang fight. The gang members are quickly surrounded, but one slips past and runs away. Officer Egan drives ahead to cut him off in an alley while a junior officer pursues him on foot. Once the gang member is cornered, he panics, pulls a gun, and shoots Officer Egan in the chest. A moment later, the gang member falls to the ground, shot by the other officer. 
Later, at the hospital, Officer Egan asks to see the Green Arrow. He just wants to know if he's going to quit. Oliver says he considered it, but realizes he needs to continue to fight for justice. Officer Egan closes his eyes and dies. We close with Oliver back at home, dying in his arms, and the painting of Robin Hood back on the wall where it belongs. The cover for this issue is a collage of images. Green Arrow, Dinah, Hal Jordan, a police car, an officer firing a gun, all in front of a white background splattered with blood. There's a dramatic two-page title page that recaps the incident with the teen from the previous issue, which becomes part of Oliver's nightmare on the next page, as he is still feeling miserable over shooting the teen. The outdoor scenes in the mountains are gorgeous again, and the fight sequence with Oliver and Hal is very dynamic and their strength shines through. The view of the very first punch thrown by Oliver takes up a full page and really looks painful. I thought this two-part story was well-paced and definitely dramatic. The scene with Green Arrow talking to Officer Egan about his desire to continue to fight for justice is poignant, and the death of Officer Egan is heartbreaking. Wonder Woman is one of the greatest, most long-lived, and visibly recognizable icons of female empowerment the world has ever known. That's a crushing weight of expectation to place on someone's shoulders. And Princess Diana of the Amazons has faced scathing criticism for her entire existence as a result. I'm Diablo Frank, and I've been a fan of the Amazing Amazon for my entire life. But she didn't become one of my absolute favorite superheroes until the 1990s. That doesn't seem all that long ago to me, but every year I meet more adults who are otherwise preoccupied getting born around them, so I guess it's been a spell. I try to be a good feminist and all-around decent guy, but I'm still a human being chock full of character flaws quirks, and hang-ups that make me less than anyone's ideal. Despite being an admirable heroine fighting for her rights in her satin tights, Wonder Woman is as human as Adam, and they have the same basic origin. But boy, did that guy make a mess of things. Shouldn't we extend someone with Wonder Woman's track record the same courtesy and empathy we can and should offer to the rest of the world? To be truthful, I'm not a typical fan of the Paradise Island set. I'm not big on mythology, and I'm highly critical of the most popular Themyscirin stories. I like it when Wonder Woman loses her powers and hangs out with a tiny, blind Asian martial arts master named Ai Ching, or when she works at Taco Bell and helps collect child support for a co-worker from a deadbeat mafioso dad, or when she rides around on kangaroo ponies from outer space and is a little too into bondage and spanking for the squares. Wonder Woman is great, but I really miss Diana Prince, the reminder that the heroine feels and fails and bleeds like the rest of us. That's why I call my podcast about her Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and the music playing in the background is from the off-model Kathy Lee Crosby TV movie from 1974, because I like to remember there's a woman behind all that wonder, and I'd like to talk about her if you care to listen on iTunes, Shout Engine, and the Internet Archive. The Warlord Number 27, November 1979, Atlantis Dying. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrienne Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Our story opens with the evil Demos riding on the back of a giant winged dinosaur. He returns to a citadel where his servants are surprised to see him, thinking he was dead. He scoffs at them, telling them he is beyond death. But Demos does not look as he did before. Part of his face and one of his hands are disfigured, and we learn that his mangled body lay rotting alongside the remains of the giant hound's shadow for so long that when he was finally able to regain his life force, his body fused with parts of the hound. Next, our story returns to Morgan, now a caveman, emerging from the orb of light from the Eye of Truth, as we saw in the previous issue. However, though his body is that of a caveman, he still retains his memories, but he doesn't have long to contemplate his new situation because a saber-toothed tiger, watching him emerge from the orb, leaps upon him, killing him. (laughs) 
Suddenly Morgan finds his consciousness inside another body, and he begins to realize he is destined to revisit all of his past lives as he is reincarnated through the ages. In this life, he is Gaius the Talos, a scientist in the great city of Atlantis, serving King Thorval. The Ice Age is spreading across the land, but Gaius has invented the equipment to save Atlantis. They are pumping ocean water into the craters of the abundant volcanoes in the area, creating steam to keep their continent warm. All seems well until the first earthquake strikes. Then Gaius realizes the ocean water has cooled the subterranean lava fields, causing them to contract. Atlantis now stands on a fragile bubble of volcanic rock that is cracking. Ships are filled with the land's greatest scholars, artisans, and craftsmen, and they set sail for the four corners of the world. Meanwhile, the aging King Thorval and Gaius stay to die with the land of Atlantis. Morgan continues to revisit all of his past lives. A Nubian slave killed in the Colosseum, Lancelot in the service of King Arthur, D'Artagnan, the greatest of the musketeers, Chief Crazy Horse at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and more. Finally, Morgan finds himself back in his current life, ready to board his plane for the secret spy mission that leads him to Scataris. For a moment, he considers backing out of the mission, but then remembers that the first time he met Tara, he saved her from a T-Rex, and the first time he met Machiste, he helped him escape from slavery. He can't abandon them. As his plane takes off, he finds himself transported back to the Eye of Truth mere seconds after he left, where he finds the mercenary Shakal firing his weapon at Ashir. Morgan pulls out his gun and shoots at Shakal's weapon, damaging it. The next time Shakal fires his gun, it explodes in his face, killing him. The cover features a scene of the warlord stepping from the orb of light to find the city of Atlantis crashing down around him as a volcano erupts in the background. I had no idea where the story was going to go from the previous issue, but it turned out even better than I could have imagined, and I thought it was terrific the way Mike Grill showed Morgan as a hero throughout time. The montages of those many past lives are dramatically rendered over several pages, and I really appreciate that Travis Morgan's past lives crossed many different races and ethnic groups, clearly illustrating that we are all truly the same. This was a perfect story to be reading just after hearing Mike Grell talk about the cover for the song All the Same from Brain Power, a great message in the issue and in that song. Be sure to check out the link to the video in our show notes. The majority of the issue is spent with Morgan as Gaius, and it is so interesting to see Travis Morgan's face with a completely different hairstyle and hair color, but still easily recognizable. The images of the city of Atlantis are lovely, and it's sad to see the city destroyed so soon. The Warlord, number 28, December 1979. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Jack C. Harris. This issue of The Warlord features two separate short stories that take place simultaneously. The Curse of the Cobra Queen. The issue opens with Ashir and Morgan parting ways. Ashir is heading back to Kombuka to take the crown and serve his people while Morgan turns to Shambhala in the hopes that Tara will forgive him and take him back. Plummeting from space, a meteor enters the Earth's atmosphere and unbelievably follows a path that takes it through the opening in the North Pole and into the world of Skirtaris. Morgan looks to the sky in amazement and sees the meteor explode into multiple pieces, one of which crashes in a nearby jungle, where a cobra slithers toward it drawn by the warmth of the radiation emanating from the fragment. Later, riding through the jungle, Morgan is attacked and knocked unconscious. 
He wakes to find himself tied to a post and stares at a beautiful green-skinned woman sitting in front of him. As she walks toward him, he can see scales around her eyes and lips. She pulls a knife, and he is certain that he will be killed, but instead the woman cuts the bonds freeing him. The woman then begins to dance hypnotically around him. She touches his face and then leans toward him, her lips part revealing sharp fangs. But then a rustling noise in the undergrowth startles her, and she turns to see a mongoose. Suddenly, the beautiful woman transforms into a giant cobra that begins to attack. Morgan stabs the giant snake repeatedly with a knife and then fires his gun, shooting it through the head. The cobra crashes to the ground. As it dies, it transforms back into the beautiful woman. The cover announces two tales of the lost world of the warlord in large letters. It features a scene of the cobra queen in human form reclining on a throne that looks like the open mouth of a giant cobra. Morgan is bound by ropes at her feet. The double-page title page shows Morgan on horseback, staring at the sky as the meteor streaks by overhead. The story makes a point to remind the reader that in the eternal sunlight of Scartaris, it is difficult to judge the passage of time. In this way, the story never really tells how much time has passed between the meteor crashing and when we meet the Cobra Queen. The eyes of the Cobra Queen have neither iris nor pupil, so you would expect her facial expressions to be limited, but that is not the case. In these few pages, her expressions look calculating, naive, horrifying, seductive, and frightened. It's very impressive. I really like the setup for the story and would have enjoyed spending more time with the Cobra Queen. There was lots of potential with the character and the story. After seeing the giant cobra transform back into the woman as it dies, it makes Morgan wonder if it was a snake who transformed into a woman, or a woman who transformed into a snake. We will hear a similar question in the future related to another character who transforms her appearance, but that will have to wait for another time. Wizard World Tara, Mariah, and Mashist are approaching Shambhala when a fragment of a meteor streaks overhead and crashes into some nearby ruins. Mariah immediately races ahead with her horse to investigate. At the edge of the ruins, Tara warns Mariah not to enter. This is a place of evil from the age of the wizards and sorcerer kings, but Mariah ignores her and proceeds without hesitation. Mariah finds the meteor fragment laying against a piece of granite. Both stones are glowing. Suddenly, a portal opens and she is pulled inside. She finds herself in a large room. A dwarf sorcerer who introduces himself as Mongo Ironhand is surprised to see her. He was trying to conjure a three-headed dog, but says instead he got a demon. Mariah attempts to explain she is no demon, and when she uses the word Skataris, the wizard says that name will not be used for an eon or two, suggesting Mariah has traveled back in time. Back at the ruins in the present, Mashist has decided to step into the glowing portal. He tells Tara that he loves Mariah, and he can't abandon her. After he steps into the portal, it vanishes, and Tara wonders if she will ever see her friends again. Back in the distant past, Mashiste appears, and the wizard sorcerer looks on in surprise as Mashiste takes Mariah in his arms and kisses her. Then suddenly, all three are surprised when a giant three-headed dog appears. It bears its fangs and snarls as a head turns toward each of them. The start of the story is such fun, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. 
the sorcerer provides some delightful humor that works well after the darkness and sadness of some recent stories. I like the way the meteor is used to show that both stories in the issue occur simultaneously. The opening panel is great, showing our three heroes all on horseback. The horses have all been startled by the meteor, and we get to see all three riders and all three horses in very different poses. We are reminded of Mariah's scientific background and rash personality as she is much more interested in discovery than caution. And it is great to see Mashis confess his love for Mariah as the romantic entanglements in Skataris get even more complicated. Hey there! My name's Nathaniel, and I'm here to tell you about an exciting new podcast. What are you doing? Oh, hey, Liz. I'm just recording the, the podcast promo. You're recording the promo for the Punch Like a Girl podcast? Yeah. You. Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the hosts. I have more podcast experience. What? You're going to sit there and mansplain to people about a podcast focusing on graphic novels and trade collections with female protagonists? Um, oh. Yeah. Can I at least tell them how it's available on iTunes and Stitcher and at punchlikeagirlpod.wordpress.com? No. Shoot. Alright, well hang on, I'll delete this, we'll try again. That's not delete, that's the button for publish. Star Slayer, The Director's Cut, number 8, December 1995. Writer and layouts, Mike Grell. Finishes, Tim Burgard and Jeff Albrecht. Letters, Steve Haney. Colors, Rob Pryor. Editor, Mike Gold. We open with a group of Earth directors escaping in a small spacecraft from the sun that now burns with new life. As they orbit around a giant asteroid, director Bragg proudly reveals a huge spaceship called the Raptor. He secretly commissioned its construction and explains it is the fastest and most powerful ship ever built. It is just what they need to keep their power and prepare for the war ahead. But first, they will take revenge upon Torin and Tamara. The Jolly Roger is docked at the Tau 7 space station, where Crane is helping them refuel and resupply. On board the Jolly Roger, Torin has completed the portal back to his own time that he's been working on for several issues. He is about to step through the portal when Tamra stops him and explains what happened after she took him from his family at that point in history. His wife Gwyneth never forgot him, but believing he was dead, she remarried to a Roman centurion in order to protect her son during the Roman rule. The centurion was kind and loving, and he and Gwyneth had a daughter, and Tamra is their descendant. Tamra is afraid that if Torin goes back in time and reunites with Gwyneth, he will alter history. Tamra herself would no longer exist, and she and Torin would have never saved the solar system, resulting in the deaths of hundreds of millions. Torin is tempted to take that chance and return to the Earth and the family he loves, when the giant ship the Raptor suddenly appears and begins to fire at the Jolly Roger and the space station. Sam, Tamra, and Torin all jump to the controls of the Jolly Roger. As the space station is destroyed, Crane and several other ships join the Jolly Roger as they all maneuver to escape the powerful Raptor. As the ships warp into space, they know they have all become targets and fugitives to be chased by Bragg and the other directors. Later, after they have safely escaped, Torin returns to the time portal. 
As he shuts down the equipment, he says goodbye to his family as tears roll down his face. The little android Sam begins to play as time goes by, and when the song ends, Torin turns to him and says, Play it again, Sam. As they sell away, the closing narration says, This could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This is one of my favorite covers. It's a collage of Torin, Tamra, and the Jolly Roger with a spaceship battle among the planets and stars. The Jolly Roger looks great with its red cells unfurled. Sadly, Mike Grail was too busy at the time to finish the art for this issue, so he only provides the layouts. However, there are still many beautiful images throughout the issue. The double-page spread of the Raptor spaceship against the asteroid backdrop looks terrific. The layout and pacing of the space battle is well done. It's exciting with lots of impressive explosions and dramatic images. I always love seeing the Jolly Roger, and there are several great views of it in this issue. There are also several drawings of Torin and Tamra throughout the issue that do a great job of expressing their emotional anguish, as they both must make difficult decisions. It was sad, but interesting to learn about the life of Torin's family after he disappeared. The illustrations of the clothing and Roman chariots were well done and brought that historical period to life. And the story ends with a wonderful parting scene of the Jolly Roger against a gorgeous space background that reminds you just how much fun this series is. I also loved all of the many tributes to Casablanca, which is a favorite movie of ours. This is the end of Mike Grell's involvement with Star Slayer, but the series did continue for about three more years, ending with issue 34. John Ostrander, Timothy Truman, Hilary Barta, Tom Sutton, and others worked on the later stories. While we won't be covering those issues at this time, we certainly encourage anyone who enjoys the series to pick up those issues. They're good fun, and we want to sincerely thank Joe Crawford for helping us fill in some missing issues in our collection. That's right. Joe sent us a wonderful gift box of comics, including issues of Star Trek, Doctor Who, Archie, and some of those later issues of Star Slayer. Thank you, Joe. Next up is listener feedback, when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We really appreciate every comment. They add a lot to the show. Thanks to everyone who took time to write in or get in touch through social media. First, we'll just mention that since our Star Slayer coverage ends with this episode, we'll be replacing it with something new next time. We're planning something special that we hope everyone will enjoy, so stay tuned until next time. Mike Grell has been a guest at several recent conventions, including Central City Comic Con in Washington State and Fantasticon in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Upcoming cons include the Rocky Mountain Con in Denver, Colorado, and Paradise City Comic Con in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Regular listener Brian Mulvey was able to attend SatCon in Sacramento, where Mike Grell was a guest. Barry was able to get a gorgeous original drawing of Shadow that we'll share on our social media pages. It is beautiful. While there, Mike Grell mentioned that he's encouraging fans to write DC to request a new hardback printing of the Longbow Hunters in 2017 to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the series. We would love a hardback edition of that series on high-quality paper, so we've written to DC to add our support and encourage everyone else who is a fan of Mike Grell's Green Arrow to contact DC as well and make that a suggestion. When our last episode was released, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast said, I love seeing these new episode posts. Time to get my Grell on. Jeff also heard us mention Alan Wright's comments in the last episode and followed up to let us know that Alan actually read the first draft of his Robin Hood play back in 2000 when it was originally produced. Alan is an expert on Robin Hood and runs the Bold Outlaw website. It's nice to see that Mike Grell and Robin Hood collide on Warlord Worlds. Alan Wright got in touch to say thanks for the shout-out and another great episode. 
Allen also promoted a Green Arrow 75th anniversary sale in Comixology and commented that it is trying to turn Robin Hood scholars onto Mike Grell's run. Many of Allen's followers are devoted to Robin Hood, and it makes sense that some of them will be Green Arrow fans too. We're glad Allen noticed that sale, and we shared it as well and hope that everyone was able to take advantage of the reduced prices. And we got an endorsement about Warlord Worlds from Tim Wallace of the Cord Industries Blue Beetle blog. He said, Worth listening for the Green Arrow coverage alone. The rest is icing on the comic book cake. Thanks, Tim. Paul Hicks of Waiting for Doom was one of our recent contest winners, and he wrote saying, I just finished reading the Warlord trade, and wow, I had no idea I would enjoy it so much. The book is such pure distilled high adventure with beautiful illustrations and superb storytelling. It's the first time I've ever read Travis Morgan's adventures, and amazingly, you were both there with me as I read them. Whenever I read the third-person narrator boxes, I was hearing your voices alternating each box. I've just become so used to the sound of your voices with a synopsis of Warlord. That's so sweet. Thank you, Paul. Nicholas Prom of the Comic Reflections podcast wrote regarding the latest episode saying, Top-notch adventure comics described and dissected by Darren and Ruth, a top-notch podcasting pair. Thanks, Nicholas. Mike Barrett said, I really enjoyed episode 10. You got me rereading a lot of the Grell stuff. Thanks for trying out our show, Mike, and for letting us know what you think. We're happy to hear you are rereading Mike Grell's work. We're having a great time revisiting his titles as well. Shag, a.k.a. Firestorm fan of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, promoted our last episode, saying, It includes me and Keith G. Baker chatting about our Mike Grell origins. Then Keith chimed in to say he had a ball. Thanks, guys. We were thrilled to have you both on the show. Joe Crawford of the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader wrote, Fun episode as usual. I actually began reading Star Slayer originally because of the Rocketeer backup. Also, great to hear more Mike Grell origin stories. Thanks for the episode. Plus, Joe shared a video of Batman and Black Canary from an animated series saying, What an episode. What a finale. Our friends at Comics in the Golden Age wrote, Great episode as always. Liked hearing the reference to William Powell and Myrna Lloyd, my favorite on-screen couple. And we agree, we love the Thin Man movies, and we know that Martin Gray does too. It's nice to find other things we all have in common. Loyal listener John Baker wrote to tell us about a great discovery. He said, I stumbled upon a pop culture shop at the coast. They had comics, including a whole bin of the Warlord. I'd never seen the shop before with multiple trips, and I startled my wife when I shouted out my excitement. That's a really fun story, John. Thanks for sharing it. And hope you picked up some of those great issues at good prices. And Dr. G, the man of nerdology from Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, let us know he loved the last episode, too. And we want to thank both Joe Crawford and Dr. G for sharing an interesting post about Star Slayer from the American Comic Book Chronicles on Facebook. It includes a lot of great photos, and we'll include a link to their page in the show notes. We were happy to see an episode from Nathaniel Wayne of the 90s Comics Retrial from the Council of Geeks, focused on Shaman's Tears by Mike Grell. We'll include a link in the show notes. We're looking forward to covering Shaman's Tears in the future on the podcast. Tony Anthony wrote, Mike Grell is my favorite comic book artist. His work on the Legion cemented my love of that group. Tony was quite excited to hear we plan to cover Legion in the future. He said, that's great news. Mike Grell is responsible for so many warm and positive thoughts about the future and the hope it holds for all of us. Thanks for your enthusiasm, Tony, and keep listening for more news about the Legion. Karen Williams of the blog Between the Pages kindly shared a link to the Bronze Age Babies article about Mike Grell's Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes issue 219. We appreciated reading that, and we'll be sure to add that link to the show notes. And we happen to know that issue has a special meaning for Jeff Messer as well. 
Ange of the Supergirl comic box commentary exclaimed, Dollar Box Joy, as he found Warlord with the second part of Claw, along with a ton of other Warlord issues in the Dollar Box. What a great find, Ange. It feels like successful treasure hunting when you come across something you really want in those long boxes. Colonel Rick Flagg wrote to say, I love Warlord. That would be an amazing rebirth title, as we haven't had a good sword and sorcery book for some time. I also really like Arion, as that would be an amazing character to include with, say, Justice League Dark. I agree completely that it's been too long since we've had a good sword and sorcery book, and we like Arion as well, so we really like those ideas. Coincidentally, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog shared that he's been rereading Arion lately, and he posted some intriguing teasers about the series that certainly had us interested. Arion is linked to The Warlord because it started as a backup feature in The Warlord issue number 55, and it's also linked to our friend Lori Sutton, who was the editor on The Warlord at the time. It's a great title, and I'm glad it spun off into its own book. I noticed that Gail Simone mentioned Mike Grell on Twitter. She said, I wanted to use Kartaris in Secret Six, and instead of just doing it, I asked Mike Grell directly. He could not have been nicer. It was great to see that. Before we wrap up, we want to give a special thank you to Rob Kelly of the excellent Aquaman Shrine website and the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Rob invited us to record a guest spot on the Fire & Water Podcast to discuss Mike Grell's first assignment at DC, where he drew Aquaman in Adventure Comics in three stories in issues 435, 436, and 437. We are huge fans of Aquaman and, of course, Mike Grell. And with a host as great as Rob, we had a wonderful time discussing the stories. We'll be sure to promote it on social media and let everyone know when the episode is out. And thank you for the invitation, Rob. And let me also mention that Bronze Age Babies did a great blog post a couple of years ago about Adventure Comics issues number 435 and 436, and you can find that link in the show notes. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since the last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. And if we happen to miss a name, please let us know, and we'll include it next time. And please forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just let us know, and we'll be happy to correct it next time as well. Alan Gonzalez, Alan Leach Jr., Allie May, Andrew Moss, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Aaron Scott, Ashford from Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey, Austin Andrew, BC Fan 101, Bill Beer of Too Old, Too New Podcast, Bo Edmonds, Brian Mulvey, Captain Marvel 75, Christopher Mills of the Atomic Pulp Blog and writer for great titles like Perils on Planet X and Gravedigger, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics Blog, Colonel Rick Flagg, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Colin Stapleton from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, in name only, Dana Spallinger, David Joel, David Palazzolo, Dexter Heron, Diabolu Frank from the Idlehead of Diabolu Martian Manhunter blog and Diana Prince Wonder Woman. Dr. G Man of Nerdology of the Pulp to Pixel podcast. Ed Terry and Nick Moore of Till Productions. Eric Mannix from Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages. Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks. Gus Sabalios of the Mike Grell Facebook page. J.E. Paz. James Bounds. Jay Jones, a.k.a. FKA Jason of the Silver and Gold podcast. Jeff Messer from the Geek Brain Popcast. Jerry McMullen, also of the Worst Comics Podcast Ever. Joe Crawford from the blog for the Non-Discerning Reader. John Baker. John Rogers. Joris Royer. Karen Williams of Between the Pages. Kevin Olson. Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. 
Larry Looper Jr., also known as The Question and Vic Sage, and writer for The Retroist. Laurie Sutton, former DC editor and writer of You Choose Adventure books. Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun blog and podcast. Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous blog. Martin Martinez. Mary Brown Thomason. Michael Carlisle of the blog Crapbox Son of Cthulhu. Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age. Michael Myers. Mike Barrett. Mike Tamaris. Nathaniel Wayne of the 90s Comics Retrial from the Council of Geeks. Neil Burke. Nexus Mike. Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections. Nick Cataterlos. Noah Tipton. Paul Carroll. Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast. Philip Haxo. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Rolled Spine Podcast. Ruth Reese. Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets. And Midnight, the Podcasting Hour. Scott Amos. Irredeemable Shag of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, also known as Firestorm Fan. Silver and Gold Podcast. Tim Wallace of Cord Industries Blue Beetle Blog and the Phantom Skull Cave Blog. Todd Reese. Tony Greenall. And Wendy Freeman of the Podcast Double Page Spread. Before we go, we'll provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram under the name Warlord Worlds. You can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. I think it's a very good way to help the show be noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show. It makes it easy to know when a new episode is posted. You may also enjoy our other podcasts. Trek or Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. All three are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you will come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.